It's in Luke chapter 1, in a message entitled, The Messenger of the Son of Man. Last week, we introduced a, a new series of messages in the Gospel of Luke. We're going to go verse by verse through this great gospel with a theme of the Son of Man has come to seek and to save the lost. We're thinking today about the forerunner of the Son of Man. We learned something about that designation, Son of Man, in relation to the life and the ministry of Jesus. Uh, The Son of Man references both his deity as God, and it references his humanity as man, as the long-promised and awaited Messiah. As we think today about the messenger of the Son of Man, we're going to begin to look more in depth at some of the detailed events that took place leading up to the birth of Jesus. Luke, who was a medical doctor, wrote the Gospel of Luke and Acts, which comprises almost a third of the New Testament. His stated purpose for writing is found in verse 4, as he's addressing it to Theophilus, but then ultimately to us as well, that you may know the certainty of those things in which you were instructed. Certainty is that which corresponds to exact truth. Certainty describes something that displays firmness, security, and safety. And we are wired to be drawn toward certainty. In fact, we don't like, as human beings, uncertainty. It brings stress into our lives. It brings more questions than it does answers. And we like something that we can build our lives on. And this is what the Word of God is teaching us, that we can build our lives on this account because this account ultimately points us to Jesus. So it was from the perspective of a historian that Luke undertook an effort to compile an accurate narrative of events. He wrote on the basis of investigation. He wrote what he describes as thorough and comprehensive and orderly. The aim was to verify the events of the life of Jesus and pass down to us a faithful account from his perspective under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And I'm going to ask and answer this question in the few minutes that we have together today. What does the birth of John the Baptist, the messenger of the Son of Man, teach us about God? What can we learn about God from the account in Scripture? Luke arranged this material, interestingly, uh, in the following sections in a form which give us a parallel account, in a sense, between the birth of John the Baptist and the birth of Jesus. Both cases give us parents being introduced. Of course, the Holy Spirit being the one who conceived in the womb of Mary the birth of Jesus. An angel appeared in both accounts. A sign was given, and a woman who had not had a child before became with child and would have a child. And as we read these verses beginning in verse 5, we're going to begin to learn what we can take to heart and apply to our lives about who God is and how he acts on our behalf. Now, I've decided in these opening chapters, at least through the birth narrative of Jesus, that I'm going to preach these messages from the New King James Version. 
I'm doing that because I think the birth account of Jesus in particular is so familiar to us and we identify so much with it that uh, preaching it from the New King James perspective is a little bit more in tune probably with what our many of our hearts and our minds hear when we think about the birth of Jesus. So I begin with the story of John the Baptist in the same way and begin reading in verse 5. And this is what the Word of God says. There was in the days of Herod, the king of Judea, a certain priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah. His wife was of the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord, blameless. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both well advanced in years. So it was that while he was serving as a priest before God in the order of his division, according to the custom of his priesthood, his lot fell to burn incense when he went into the temple of the Lord. And the whole multitude of the people was praying outside at the hour of incense. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And when Zacharias saw him, he was troubled, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your prayer is heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. First, the birth of the messenger of the Son of Man teaches us to anticipate the promises of God. That we as faith-filled people, because God does what he says he's going to do, we should anticipate the promises of God. Now we have some historical context here. It's identified as in the days of Herod, the king of Judea. Herod was part of an Idumean dynasty whose members governed for around 150 years, also encompassing what we know as the New Testament era. There's not just one Herod in the New Testament. There's Herod the Great and Herod Archelaus, Herod Antipas, uh, Herod Agrippa I, Herod Agrippa II, and then Herod Philip, who's also simply referred to as Philip. But verse 5 refers to Herod the Great. Herod the Great, who was the one known as the builder. He was the one who completely remodeled the Jerusalem temple. He designed Caesarea and other surrounding cities. He built palaces at Jerusalem and a place at Masada and other places under his reign as well. He had a reign of just over 40 years. It was during his reign that the Magi would visit Jerusalem and he ordered the slaughter of the innocents in Bethlehem in an effort to uh, get rid of the Christ child. And Herod was particularly bloodthirsty, having even murdered members of his own family, even one of his sons, just five days before his own death. The time frame of King Herod was one of a period of Israel's subjection to what amounted to a Roman client king. The only authority or the only power that he had came because Rome put him in that position, and their concern was simply just to keep the Jewish people under control, to be sure that taxes were paid and they got what they wanted as a state and as, uh, as a political entity. And Herod exasperated the bad feelings toward him by much of his activity and his actions toward the people. So it's right in the midst of all of this that there is this priest named Zacharias. His wife's name is Elizabeth. 
They were both from a priestly line. So this is kind of like uh, the preacher Mary and the preacher's daughter. I kind of find some similarities in that myself because that's what our circumstance is. And certainly that's the case in the life of Zacharias and, Eliz- and Elizabeth. The Bible says that they were faithful. They evidently were believing Jews who wanted to follow after what the Lord wanted them to do. The name Zacharias means God remembers. Uh, and he was in a division of priests that had been ordered originally under David because it was the priestly order that they divided themselves into 24 different divisions. His particular division was the division of Abijah. It was the eighth division, and it was in that that he served. Elizabeth's name means, my God is an oath. Now, isn't it interesting how God would fulfill his promises through them, and they served, it says in verse 6, in a way that was righteous before God. Now, that's important because we asked the question, how were they righteous? The Messiah had not yet come. The cross had not yet happened. The resurrection had not yet taken place. So how could these people who were on the other side of the cross, on the other side of the Messiah, be seen as righteous? Salvation has always been by grace through faith. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him. It was credited to him as righteousness. They believed the promise in anticipation, looking forward to the Messiah who was to come. And as a result of that, they were walking in all of the commandments and the ordinances of the Lord blameless. That does not mean that they were sinlessly perfect because no one has ever walked the face of the planet who has been sinlessly perfect other than the Lord Jesus himself. But what it does mean is that they walked consistently in the fear of the Lord and it was their heart's desire that they would obey God. And that should be our heart's desire as well as we serve him, much as the Bible describes Noah in Genesis 6 and verse 9, that Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his time. Noah walked with God. Or what about the description of Job in Job 1 and verse 1? There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless, upright, fearing God and turning away from evil. Here's the beauty of this story. As they anticipated the promises of God, The beauty of the story is that God uses ordinary people who are living lives of godliness, who have a heart's desire to fear God and to do what God has said. God uses those kinds of people. So we see a Zacharias and Elizabeth, and we see how he so profoundly used their lives. But then we ask ourselves the question, what difference would it make in our lives if we walked in full understanding that everything that we do is in God's sight? Because it's described as though they were, they were walking in God's sight. They were blameless in the sight of the Lord. You understand, we try to convince ourselves that God doesn't see, that God doesn't care, that God really doesn't have an opinion about what we're doing, that we're free agents of sort, living in the world, doing as we please. When all the while, God sees it all, and he knows not only the actions that we take, but God also knows the motivations of our hearts. He knows not only what we do, but he knows why we do it. And they sought to honor the Lord. Now, Luke informs us that they had no child, and evidently they were up in years, meaning they were old, and apparently their barrenness was a burden but it was about to become a blessing. 
They were in an age where childbearing would have seen, been seen as virtually an impossibility. And so it was while he was serving as a priest before God that his lot fell to burn incense when he went into the temple of the Lord. Zacharias as a priest would have served at the temple for two one-week periods a year, apart from the major festivals that the Jews would have observed. There were estimated to be as many as 20,000 priests. Again, they were in these divisions, and they would, on a rotating basis, have certain responsibilities in worship of God. And there was a system of lots that they would use to determine whose turn it was. Who got to go and offer incense at the altar in the holy place? This was a rare privilege. So this was not just a routine activity that Zacharias would have been involved in. This is like a highlight of his life. Because if the lots didn't fall to you, and it wasn't in your order of doing things, it wasn't your turn, then you just kept waiting. And here he is being called to serve in the temple with this incense offering that was symbolic of the prayers of God's people. So what we have in view here is when they prepared and they went into the temple and they offered up this burning incense and it rose up, it was in the manifest presence of the glory of God in the temple. And it was as though the prayers of God's people were visibly rising up from the presence of God into his very throne room. And that was the responsibility that Zacharias had. He's praying on the inside. The people are praying on the outside. Rod Mattoon, the commentator, commented on it this way. He said, Zacharias proceeds toward the golden altar. He's accompanied by two assistants. One of these men is carrying a golden bowl of burning coals from the brazen altar of burnt offering, and he's spreading them out on the altar of incense. The coals had to come from the brazen altar, and after the assistant carries the coals to the altar, he withdraws. The other assistant is carrying a golden censer filled with incense. He arranges the incense upon the altar, followed by solemn silence, and then a signal is given. The sacred moment has arrived for Zacharias to place the incense upon the coals, causing a cloud to arise in the temple, and its fragrance to spread as the fire unleashes the aroma up to God. And as that holy smoke arises, Zacharias offers a fervent prayer for the peace of Israel and gratefulness for God's blessings. So picture this priest. He's there at the altar. He's doing what God's called him to do. And in that moment, verse 11, an angel of the Lord appeared to him. And this angel was standing on the right side of the altar of incense. Luke mentions angels again and again in his gospel. Uh, the word angel simply means messenger. There are messengers sent forth from God to do the work in the will of God, and they are messengers of God. And in this instance, one appears to him. And we learn a little bit later on in the verses that we'll read in Luke 1, along about verse 19, that this angel specifically is Gabriel. This is the same Gabriel who had appeared in Babylon over 500 years before in Daniel. Daniel's encounter and vision had to do with the revelation of future messianic times. Now watch this connection here. This is too good to miss. Gabriel's there talking about things that are going to come way out in the future. And now Gabriel's there at the altar of incense. 
And he's about to speak of the dawn of the messianic age. So the message that he told them about 500 years before that they had anticipated in those centuries that it followed, now it's about to come to pass in real time. Zacharias has the privilege of being there in the presence of that angel. And verse 12 says, when he saw him, he was troubled and fear fell upon him. Let me translate that for you. Zacharias was shook. He was shook. Can you imagine that you're doing your thing and yes, you have faith and yes, you're worshiping God and yes, you're thinking about the things of God. But now all of a sudden, a messenger from God is standing before you. And not only is the messenger of God standing before you, but he's talking to you. He's got something to say. And he said to him, don't be afraid. Your prayer is heard. And your wife's going to bear a son. And his name is going to be John. The name John means God has been gracious. A faithful remnant of God's people had been praying that he would fulfill his promise of sending salvation through his Messiah. And without notice, God breaks in in this moment of time. He breaks into history and he announces what he was about to do in the birth of John the Baptist, which more importantly pointed to what he was about to do in the birth of the Messiah. And that's how God works. He works on his timetable in the way that he sees fit. And Gabriel tells him, don't be afraid. Your prayer has been heard. Now, what would it mean for you if an angel from the Lord appeared to you and he said to you, your prayer has been heard? Have you been praying anything that is faith worthy? Have you been praying anything that is in a real sense of anticipation of what God is going to do? Have you been praying anything that really reveals what you think about God? Is there something that seems like an impossibility that would be a too good to be true answer? And the angel comes to you and says, your prayer has been heard. Or do you not have much that you've been praying about? Would it be a ho-hum moment? You see, prayers are not necessarily, they've not necessarily been rejected just because the answer is delayed. These people anticipated the promises of God, and we should as well. We pick up reading again in verse 15. For he will be, a great, he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. He will also be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He will also go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. And Zechariah said to the angel, how shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife is well advanced in years. And the angel answered and said to him, I am Gabriel who stands in the presence of God. Now, permit me a parenthesis here just for a moment. I have read this verse. I don't know how many times I've read it in my life. And every time that I read that verse where he says, I am, I am Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God. 
There is an absolute sense of awe that comes over me because I know that this earth is not all there is. What we can see and what we can touch and what we can experience, this is not the whole story. That there is a throne in heaven where the God over all the universe reigns and seated at his right hand is Jesus, the Lord of all glory. And there are ministering servants around that throne who are in the presence of God to do the will of God. And Gabriel says, I stand in the presence of God and I was sent, remember he's a messenger, to speak to you. But behold, verse 20, you'll be mute and not able to speak until the day these things take place because you did not believe my words which will be fulfilled in their own time. And the people waited for Zacharias and marveled that he lingered so long in the temple. But when he came out, he could not speak to them and they perceived that he had seen a vision in the temple for he beckoned to them and remained speechless. So it was as soon as the days of his service were completed that he departed to his own house Now after those days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and she hid herself five months, saying, Thus the Lord has dealt with me in the days when he looked upon me to take away my reproach among people. Second, the birth of the messenger of the Son of Man teaches us to believe the word of God. Gabriel gave a joy-filled description of the son who would be born. And the joy would come in particular because his life as the messenger of the Son of Man would point to the greatest joy of all, Jesus. You understand all of these stories and the buildup and the account of it all, there's one focus and that focus is Jesus. When we talk about the gospel and we talk about forgiveness and eternal life, It's not just that we're going to have a home in heaven someday where that throne of God is and where Jesus is seated at the right hand of God the Father. The joy and the glory of heaven will be that we will be in the presence of God and we will have fellowship with the one who created us and redeemed us and sustains us and we will be with him and have eternal life. That's the joy. That's the point of this story. The joy would be because of Jesus. So Gabriel, the angel, prophesies about John's character, his spiritual formation, the content of his ministry, that he would be great in the sight of the Lord. This is the man of whom Jesus would later say, among those born of women, there is not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. You remember what John the Baptist said of Jesus? He must increase and I must decrease. And therein lies the secret of a faithful life for the Savior, that he would increase and that we would decrease. John would live a holy life, at least in part according to the vow of a Nazarite. I don't have time to go in depth into what a Nazarite vow is. You can look back to the book of Numbers and read more about that, but from birth, He was prepared for special service to God. Having been filled with the Holy Spirit, he would not partake of any type of strong, intoxicating drink, and his life would be in complete dedication to God. And his responsibility would be to turn many people to the Lord, that he would go in the spirit and the power of Elijah. 
Now, Gabriel quoted in part the final two verses of the Old Testament to summarize his earthly ministry, and he's referencing Elijah in particular, who served in power before the Lord. John the Baptist would minister in that same spirit and power. That would be his life. But here was the question that was in front of Zacharias as as the angel appeared before him with these statements. The question was the same question that is for us. Would he believe the word of God? That's the question that comes to us today. Will you believe the word of God? Because this is the only way that we know what we know. This is the only way that we can have the certainty that I open with this morning that is certainly Luke's intent in verse 4. And Zacharias failed the initial test. He said, well, how can I know this? Man, you can know it because there's an angel standing in front of you. He says, I'm old and my wife's old too. How am I going to know this? And somebody said this section ought to be entitled, How Not to Talk to an Angel. (laughs) He shouldn't have doubted. As a priest, he was well acquainted with the scriptures. He was a man of God. Here he was praying in the temple on the most important day of his life. He's in the presence of a supernatural being. He should have recognized that the message had come from God. He's prayed here at the altar of incense, evidently for a son, because the angel says, your prayers have been heard. But now watch this. Did you know that doubt is not usually from a lack of evidence? Doubt is usually from a lack of faith. Let me say that again, just in case you didn't hear it. Doubt is not usually from a lack of evidence. Doubt is from a lack of faith. And he had an angel appear to him with direct revelation, but yet he did not believe. Later on in the Gospel of Luke, the rich man in Hades is going to plead with Abraham to send someone to warn his brothers so that they would not too end up in the awful place of suffering. And Abraham replied that his brothers had Moses and the prophets. If they didn't believe them, they probably weren't going to believe anything else either. And I think the reason that we don't often have answers to our prayers is that we lack faith and we are prone to limit God and cut him down to our size. And the Lord knows we know how weak and incapable we are on our own and how in need we are of the grace of God. So the solution to your doubt is the word of God. The solution to your doubt is to believe what God has said. The solution to your doubt is to come before the throne of God and to come boldly and with confidence through the blood of Jesus and the confidence of what he's done for you and his finished work at the cross and the power of his resurrection. And even now as we fix our eyes on him, we recognize that Jesus is the author and the finisher of our faith and we can trust him because he is trustworthy. And we believe the word of God and we take it on faith that God will always do what he says he'll do. So Zacharias is struck down mute for his doubt. He comes out of the temple and everybody's like, what? What's he doing? He's been there a long time. And he comes out and they know something's up. He's had a vision or something in the sanctuary. There's something extraordinary that has happened to him. And he starts motioning. He's trying to talk. He can't talk. And God gave him some time to reflect. 
on what had just happened and what was promised. Now, evidently, it was a productive time because during that interlude, his wife Elizabeth became with child. And when God did what he said he would do, Elizabeth responded, the Lord has dealt with me. He's looked on me and he's taken away my reproach. Believe the word of God. And that brings us to the final section of scripture, beginning in verse 57. Now Elizabeth's time, her full time came for her to be delivered and she brought forth a son. When her neighbors and relatives heard how the Lord had shown great mercy to her, they rejoiced with her. So it was on the eighth day that they came to circumcise the child and they would have called him by the name of his father, Zacharias. His mother answered and said, no, he shall be called John. But they said to her, there's no one among your relatives who is called by this name. So they made signs to his father what he would have him called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote saying, his name is John. So they all marveled. Immediately his mouth was open and his tongue loosed and he spoke praising God. Then fear came on all who dwelt around, around them and all these sayings were discussed throughout all the hill country of Judea. And all those who heard them kept them in their hearts saying, what kind of child will this be? And the hand of the Lord was with him. Now verse 67 now his father Zacharias was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied saying, blessed is the Lord God of Israel for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets who have been since the world began that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to perform the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, the prophet of the highest. For you will go before the face of the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people by the remission of their sins. Through the tender mercy of our God, with which the day spring from on high has visited us, to give light to those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. And so the child grew and became strong in spirit and was in the deserts till the day of his manifestation to Israel. Third, the birth of the messenger of the Son of Man teaches us to exalt the great mercy of God. Elizabeth would give birth to a son. Everyone around would rejoice in the great mercy of God. It came time to name the boy and they didn't understand when she said John because it would have been customary for them to name the boy after his father Zacharias. So they wanted to get this thing confirmed and they bring old Zacharias over and he's still not able to talk and they give him a writing tablet and he writes down sure enough his name is John and then word spread because they knew the Lord's hand was with the boy. Now notice what happens here, old Zacharias, who's been speechless for all these months because of his unbelief, he has his tongue now loosed, and he gives the final song before the day spring. He gives the final song standing as the mouthpiece of God. He was, as it were, a divine soloist, telling the story of the great mercy of God. And his words 
were none other than the words of God. His entire priestly life had drawn nourishment from the Old Testament. And there are no less than 33 allusions and quotations from the Old Testament in this brief song of praise about the mercy of God. So what we have before us when he opens his mouth and he begins to speak is a song of benediction and praise for how God was bringing the messianic sunrise to the earth. And what we see in vision here is none other than a picture of travelers who have lost their way in the wilderness. They're overtaken by the night. They're looking for the path and they don't know where to go because they cannot see. So left in that moment, they can do nothing but sit down in the darkness where the danger lurks. And it is a spiritual picture of sitting down in the darkness and the shadow of death that comes because of our sin. This is a desperate situation that we find ourselves in. And yet Zacharias tells the story of what's taking place here. And it's a song of praise that is a chain of praise about the mercies of God from the beginning to the end. It's praise to God for keeping his promise to David, the Davidic covenant. It's praise to God for keeping his promise to Abraham that happened even before that in the Abrahamic covenant. It's praise to God for keeping his promise to Zacharias through the angel Gabriel that a son would be born. But it is most of all praise to God for the coming of the rising sun. And the theme in verse 68 is that God is providing redemption, that he is providing salvation for his people. And we exalt the great mercy of God because we say together as the people of God that salvation is of the Lord. This is not of us. This is not of man's doing. This is not of our good works. This is not of our efforts. This is not somehow that we are measuring up to the righteousness of God. Oh, no. It is as though we are in the darkness of our sin. We are lost on our journey. We have no way out. We have no light to shine in and show us the way. And if God left us in that condition, we would be without help and we would be without hope. But God in his great mercy has shown the light into our lives so that we could see the darkness of our sin. And we can see the light of the righteousness of the Messiah. And this was the purpose of the messenger of the Son of Man. That the Lord God has visited us. And he has raised up for us a horn of salvation. And John would go before the face of the Lord to prepare the way of the Messiah. Look again at verse 78 and 79, and I'm going to close. Through the tender mercy of our God, with which the day spring from on high has visited us, to give light to those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death, and to guide our feet into the way of peace. By God's grace, the light the Messiah, the Son of Man, Jesus, was coming from Zacharias's perspective. And by God's grace, the light, Jesus, the Son of Man, the Messiah, has come. So now we're not looking forward to the cross and the resurrection. Now we're looking back at the finished work of Jesus at the cross. We're looking at the power of the resurrection that raised Jesus from the dead. 
And not only are we looking back, but now we're looking forward. And in the meantime, we're living in the mercy of God. And every day we are living so that our lives would be blameless before him. And we are seeking to obey him and to follow his commandments. All the while that we're looking forward to the return of Jesus. And when Jesus returns, once again, his presence is going to shine light into the darkness and he will be seen as victorious. The King of kings and the Lord of lords. And at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And we say, even so, come, Lord Jesus. So I wonder today, Christian, church member, friend... Are you living your life in such a way that when the Lord looks out and surveys who you are and what you're doing and why you're doing it, that he's pleased? Are you praying prayers that are prayers of faith in a great God so that if God heard your prayers, it would be amazing because you're believing him to do something that is humanly impossible? Is your life a life of faith because of what Christ has done for you? And then I know enough to know that in a group this size this morning, there are some who have never stepped into the light. You're still living in the darkness of your sin. You're like that traveler that has no way out. You keep moving and trying and doing, and you're still lost. And there's salvation in no other name except the name of Jesus. So I do, as John the Baptist would do with his life, I point you to him. It's not me, not this church, it's not us, it's Jesus. He's the focal point. He's the focal point of all of history and all of eternity. Do you know him? If not, today could be the day that you enter in by faith into a relationship with the Son of God who gave his life for you. Will you trust him? Father, we thank you for these moments you've given us here together around your word. I'm amazed at this account that Luke has given us in an orderly fashion so that we can know the things that we're to be certain of. We thank you for John the Baptist, a man who humbled himself and saw the need for Jesus to increase and him for, to decrease. And ultimately, as we'll learn later on, it cost him his life. You've not called us to an easy calling, an easy path, but you've called us to a blessed one. My simple prayer for my brothers and sisters in Christ today is that you'd find us faithful. Help us, Lord, because we can't do it on our own. We couldn't save ourselves. We can't live a life of faith in our own strength. Our trust and our hope is in you. We believe your word and we trust in the leading of your spirit. Maybe there's somebody here this morning, Lord, that is yet in the darkness. They've not been able to find their way out. They've been searching in different areas of life, trying to find satisfaction, trying to find a purpose. When what they need most of all is forgiveness and a Savior. I pray 
if there are any in that circumstance here today, that they would come to know Jesus by faith and their lives be eternally changed. God, you're the one who can transform us if we'll just trust you. So we'll give this time of singing and close over to you and ask you to move and work as you see fit. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.